0: Well, good morning. We are launching into a new series on parables. And I don't know if you haven't been able to determine this based on the year or so here at this point. I love preaching through stories. I really do. And that might be why we spent like 17 weeks in meeting Jesus um, and why we're going to spend another few weeks here on parables because they're fun. And they're interesting. And they are always eye-opening in new ways. And so we're going to go through some parables. And they will be parables most likely if you grew up in the church. You've heard before. You know about them. You have some idea of what the story is about. And so I'm going to say the same thing I said during meeting Jesus, which is don't write them off because you know how they end. So make sure you are paying attention because what I know about my own walk with Jesus is that uh, as my life changes and as I grow and as my thinking um, has its own way that it ebbs and flows, the Bible meets that with new information every time that we somehow missed in other seasons of life. So don't uh, take this as a series because you know the stories as the series where you get your Sunday morning nap. Now if you really do need a nap, please take one. We do believe that rest is a good thing, but don't take a nap just because you've heard the sermons before. Just if you need the rest, that's all I'm saying. So we're going to dive into parables, and before we discuss the parables themselves, we're going to break down what parables are, how parables were used, um, and for the most part, parables were a way to communicate a concept without emphasizing a technicality. Now this is really important because my guess is that Jesus used parables over and over and over with the Pharisees because the Pharisees were emphasizing technicalities and laws. And in order to not get to a spot where they got hung up on something he said about a technicality or a law, he went ahead and told stories which were a concept or an attitude or a heart sort of situation. And I want to encourage us through this entire series as well to avoid getting hung up on technicalities. And this is going to be really, really important because the whole reason these parables were shared was to people who were hung up on technicalities. So we can't take ourselves out of that entirely to say, well, that would never be me because it might be us. And so we need to make sure that we are not emphasizing in our own lives the technicalities and the laws, but rather we're going to focus on the heart, the attitude, and our understanding of the concepts. And so this may seem a little bit less cut and dry, which is totally true, because we're going to take what is the spoken, easy-to-grasp things, and instead of focusing there, we're going to focus on unspoken, harder-to-identify attitudes and perceptions. And so that will be a little bit of a challenge because most people on some level are a little bit black and white. We have a tendency to say, well, this is good and this is bad. Or this is right and this is wrong. Or like, this is what the law is, so this is what I believe. Versus how does my perception and my attitude maybe look different than the technicality at hand. And the thing about stories and why Jesus used them so often is that stories require that we put ourselves in the shoes of someone in that story. We have to understand what's happening in the story by putting ourselves into the story. And due to the Pharisees' hard hearts, they were not likely to be self-reflective enough to put themselves into the story. And this is also important to understand. And if they did put themselves into the story, it was not likely where they needed to put themselves into it. And so we get this understanding through, through scripture where it said that they were understanding but never hearing. They were seeing but never perceiving that idea. It says be ever hearing but never understanding. They would be ever seeing but never perceiving. And another thing that was said about the Pharisees by Jesus and Mark is he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts Said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. We preached on this, but it leaves some distinct clarity on how Jesus felt about the Pharisees. So, the parables that we're about to dive into require that you and I put ourselves into the story, which means that you and I have to be incredibly reflective of our own selves. And that is an incredible challenge, because while we may think that we want to be open to conviction, very rarely are we all that open to conviction. And we need to be able, through this series, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into the areas where we may be wrong about what we think and believe, because otherwise we risk ending up where the Pharisees ended up, and seeing the stories and hearing the stories, but never internalizing and understanding and putting ourselves in the shoes of the stories. So we're gonna collectively as a church body agree that we're not gonna get caught up in this series on the technicalities and whether or not we're right about what we are thinking, but we're going to just evaluate through this entire series where we fit in the story and even do that If where we fit isn't fun to acknowledge so it sounds easy uh, but on some level what we know about the Pharisees is that it wasn't easy for them uh, and it may not be easy for us and although their teacher was Jesus and he told stories perfectly and for perfect and wonderful intentions they did get missed often And so this is sort of our warning as a church body to pay attention to the stories we're going to dive into in a sort of different lens. Now let's jump into today's parable. Luke 15 is the parable of the lost sheep. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who does not need to repent. And to preface today's parable a little bit, let's talk about, again, why Jesus is telling it. The first three parables in this series, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, are stories told one after another to the Pharisees, and Jesus was basically explaining through this whole process why he was not just willing personally, but encouraging us to eat with sinners, And that's where this all started with this verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees were not upset because Jesus was teaching sinners. Now this is a really important distinction because it ties a little bit back to our conversation we had last week where we talked about our relationships and our our true friends— people of differences than our own, the intensely committed and deeply connected to type of friendships. So the Pharisees didn't and wouldn't have any issue on any level with Jesus telling sinners what to do, telling them how to act, teaching them whatever he wanted to teach them. He, they would not have cared. If he had any type of transactional relationship with people who sinned and or looked different than what uh, the Pharisees did. The issue arose with the Pharisees when Jesus chose to eat with the sinners. Because sitting down for a meal in Jesus' day was a statement of deep relationship. And it continued to be throughout all of scripture and was uh, where we get, it's where we get communion from. They sat down for a meal and the sacrament came out of that. And the Pharisees, are not the only people in the history of the Bible who didn't want to associate with people of different position, different sin habits, different status, different whatever than their own. And so what I would encourage you to do with the reason that Jesus is telling this parable is evaluate in your own life, is there a parallel for you? Is there a space where something in your story matches the reason that Jesus is telling this parable. And I would encourage us that if we think, when we ask that question, that there aren't any places that parallel for us, the Pharisees, in this particular issue, then we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us our unconscious or blind spots. And when discovering or being convicted of our own issues, our own bias, our own unconscious ways within which we have attitudes and perceptions, because again, we're not talking about the black and white and the, the technicalities with this series, is asking the Holy Spirit to make us aware of those spaces. And out of that, asking the question, is this uncomfortable for me? Because it isn't how Jesus asked me to think, Or is it uncomfortable because it challenges a lifelong assumption that I've held? And those will be two really important things because as Christians in the church, we have a tendency to blur the lines a little bit between this is how Jesus asks us to think and this is an assumption that I or the church has held my entire life. Those lines are very hard to define and draw. And so, in this particular story, this parable itself, which we are getting to now, is a way within which Jesus is addressing, hanging out with people who look, sound, exist, have a different type of job or lifestyle as the Pharisees. And in this particular story, there's nothing new, earth-shattering. There's nothing crazy, no new realities. It's a story of the lost sheep. And for us, there's nothing new or earth-shattering or shocking about the story of the lost sheep. We've heard it probably many times, and it is about as new to us as I'm sure it was to the Pharisees. And so they may have been saying, wait, why are you talking about this again? Like, what's happening? Um, And most likely, because it's not new to us, we could miss it in some of the same ways. And there are several references in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that reference the shepherd and the lost sheep concept. And Psalms talks about it, Psalm 23. We get that um, phraseology in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They both talk about sheep and shepherds in their own accounts. And the Pharisees would know that this parable was in reference to Jesus being the good shepherd and that he was central to this story. There's a few references, John 10:3. It says, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will never follow a stranger, but will run away from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus told them this parable, but they did not understand what he was telling them. And today's parable goes on to say, then Jesus told the parable, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now here's what we know about sheep. Now keep in mind while I tell you what we know about sheep and we discuss what we know about sheep that Jesus draws some comparisons between people and sheep. So what we know about sheep is that they have an instinctive desire to wander. Now, most of us probably also know that, but they are not animals that are designed to pack or carry heavy burdens. They have an instinctive ability to get stuck easily. If they get on their backs, you actually have to go and turn them onto their feet because they are so stuck. They are relatively helpless animals. They are incredibly emotional animals. They settle for things all the time that are not the best for them. But simultaneously, sheep are also incredibly valuable. And all of those reasons are why shepherds existed. And why a shepherd in a story would have to go out and get a sheep and bring it back. Because it would not have wandered back on its own at any point in time. They do not have a sense of direction, which may be you. But there's more to the sheep than that. And I don't think we have to explain too much how we may parallel some of our own actions and attitudes and ability to follow or get unstuck in this situation as sheep. And a shepherd's responsibility was to protect the flock. And sometimes that meant protecting them against predators, and sometimes that meant protecting them from themselves. And in this story, Jesus is saying that he's willing to leave the flock to find the one who has wandered away. But Jesus is willing to do more than just find it and return it. Rather than just protect it and look for it, he's actually willing to lay down his life for it. John 10, verse 11. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The parable we're reading today goes on to say, and when he finds it, talking about the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need repentance. So there's a couple of simple observations most of this morning. The parable, the Pharisees, the reason we're telling the Pharisees are all just sort of observations as we walk through Scripture. But there's some questions to apply this parable that I want to talk through. We know that Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd. And Jesus not only goes after the one who is lost, but is willing to lay down his own life for each individual— And in so many ways, leaving 99 sheep unprotected while searching for one does not make economical or logical sense. But it does make spiritual sense. And this is a really important distinction to make. Because there is a proverb in the Bible that says there's a way that seems right to man, but it leads to death. Which means that one of our questions this morning is, do we confuse what makes sense to us, economical or logical sense to us, with what is right? Because if we take the story of the 99 and we put ourselves in the shoes of the 99, they had to be uncomfortable for the sake of reaching the one who had left. So do we confuse what makes sense logically or economically with what is right? Are we willing to sacrifice any of our own comforts for the sake of the lost? The second observation here that we didn't really talk about is that there was a celebration. There's a celebration that followed the return of the lost sheep. And that celebration was a big deal because it wasn't just a celebration in the moment. Like it wasn't just that the shepherd came back and it was like, yay, here we are. It's that the heavens were rejoicing. And I am sure you have some parallel in your own story where you've celebrated something with one person or you've celebrated something with a bunch of people or like you have a birthday party with your family and then you celebrate a 60th anniversary and tons of people come or like there are multiple different ways within which we all celebrate and the way that we share in celebrations. And this was not a like shoot a text out and be like, hey, I got that job. It was like the heavens are rejoicing. And that's really, really, really important because what it says is that when we are willing to, in any part of this story, sacrifice our comforts, do the evangelizing, and or put ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees to say, you know what? I might have a perception, an attitude, or a bias that is causing a problem is that this is not just about us. This is not just one moment between you and me. This is not just one moment at Cook's Hill. This is a moment that is celebrated in heaven. And it's so much bigger than a uh, momentary celebration that happens on this end. And so there's a celebration when he comes back, not just there in that moment, but the heaven's are rejoicing over one sinner who repents. The entire heavens. The neighbors, the friends, the families. And the celebration over people who repent is not common in our story today. It's really not. I mean, I don't know if you can even remember one or two times where people have actually celebrated repentance It's hard to find those memories where we're like, wait, when have we celebrated repentance? When have we rejoiced together? When have we called our neighbors to tell them about repentance? That doesn't happen very often. Most likely, they'd be like, what? Huh? And then they'd be like, ooh, tell me more about that, because that sounds like something to be excited about. So there is more rejoicing in heaven, compounded with the rejoicing of what is happening here. But here's the thing. The temptation in this story of rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who is lost, the temptation is to say, I will celebrate when you evangelize. Because that would be easy. Everybody wants to go to a party. Everybody wants to get the text or the phone call and be like, yay, I'm so happy for you. But in order to get to the celebration, in order to get to the celebration, you and I have responsibility in that story. So the question is, are we waiting for someone else to reach the lost so that we can share in the celebration of what they've done? The answer is you should be, yes, but also you should be working to reach the lost for Jesus. And here's the thing. If we are not collectively working to reach the lost for Jesus, then we will not be collectively celebrating because we may not have something to celebrate. Luke 15:7 says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God the 99 others who haven't strayed away. Matthew 18, another telling of the same. In the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any should perish, not one. And the final observation this morning, as we get ready to go back into worship and reflection, is on why the story was necessary in the first place. Remember the reason Jesus was telling it was because the Pharisees said, hey, why are you welcoming sinners? Why are you eating with them? Why are you sharing your home with people who look, sound, act, struggle with different sins than I do? Why are you there? Because we don't want that association. Now, it is unlikely that any of us openly say we don't want this association, right? That's not a common phrase. We don't often hear people say, well, I wouldn't associate with someone who does that. But let me ask it this way. While you might not come out and say, I'm not going to have dinner with people like that, you may have placed in your own mind a hierarchy of whose sins are worse than yours. And is that different? Because we have a tendency as humans to take our own sins and make sure that we minimize them enough that someone else has a worse sin. There's probably nobody in this room, myself included, that if you came up to us would say, Oh, I definitely struggle with the worst sin. No way. We're going to say, well, it's not as bad as that. It's not as bad as that. Well, at least I don't murder. As a pastor, I have heard that a few times. So it's not a totally unrealistic phrase. So while we may not say, like, I'm not going to eat with this person, or I'm not going to share my home with this person, or I don't associate with these types of people, we may... In our own, again, we're not talking about the laws and the technicalities. We're talking about the perceptions and the concepts here. We may have in our own hearts and minds a hierarchy of what makes other people's sins worse than ours. So question number three, and our final question this morning, is are we inviting the Holy Spirit to make us aware of our unconscious, bias? prejudice, or spiritual pride. Because the thing about all of those things, unconscious pride, is that they are things that blind us to our own selves. And without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we may never come across them. We may never step into those spaces because they are the opposite of what would allow us to be effectively self-reflective. Pride does not allow us to see our own hearts for what, are, what they are and for what they struggle with. Unconscious means we don't even know about it. So naturally, those are spaces where we need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And here's the reality. In order to receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we need to be paying attention. We need to be inviting it. We need to be asking for it. We need to be looking for it. We need to be in a place where we are willing to be convicted by the Holy Spirit which means that lifelong assumptions we may have held or been taught may be challenged, but that we are willing to walk through them asking the question, is it uncomfortable because it's a lifelong assumption that I've held, or is it uncomfortable because it's something Jesus didn't ask me to think?